The powers that be, who are they? Lipscomb begins this section with a letter from one with the initials R.W.L. from Thyatira, Mississippi, July 26, 1869. Brother Lipscomb, who has mingled in the society of the present day but has had reason to think and evidence to know that we greatly lack the zeal, purity, and simplicity taught in the New Testament? By what badge or sign do we distinguish between the professed Christian from the man of the world? Both thrown into the common whirlpool of secular affairs, it is often a difficult task to distinguish between them. Certainly we too often fail to realize our responsibility as professed followers of our Savior. Are we not commanded to be as a city set on a hill, etc.? Does not Paul admonish us to let our conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ? Philippians 1, verse 27. And again, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Ephesians 5, verse 11. Also, James 3, 13, 1 Peter 1, 15, and Hebrews 13, verse 5. Religion was designed by its divine author to keep the whole man in order, whether he be engaged in business, in keeping company, or devotionally. But how often do we witness long and animated conversations in which almost every other interest is discussed save the one eternal interest? Whatsoever we sow, that shall we also reap. There is no medium ground. Almost a Christian is not a Christian at all. True, we may live up to the forms and ceremonies of religion and show to outsiders a tolerable external, and yet fall far short of the Christian character. Many of us act as though we believe to conform to the teachings of the church, read the Bible occasionally, hear sermons when convenient, engage in benevolent enterprises when not too expensive, keep the Lord's Day, receive the Lord's Supper, etc., will suffice. But when we scrutinize our actions, we must all confess that our course is pharisaical. We ought to examine ourselves, see our own weaknesses, acknowledge them, condemn ourselves on account of them, and repent by turning from them. But I did not set down to write an essay on Christian deportment, but to ask some information. In the thirteenth chapter of Romans, Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the higher authorities, for there is no authority but from God. The authorities that are have been appointed by God. Therefore, he that resisteth the authority resisteth the appointment of God, and those who resist receive to themselves condemnation. Anderson's Translation Are we to conclude from this that God appoints the temporal government of the world? If so, in what sense is it to be understood? If he appoints them in the sense often advocated, it appears to me they would be more in harmony with his revealed word. Is there anything in the establishment and preservation of human governments above and beyond the capacity of man? But in their ever-changing, unjust course without stability, always on the lookout for something more, are they not peculiarly of men? When God appointed a government for the Jews, He did it in such a way as not to leave them in any doubt about it, and in it we see the wisdom of God. But may this passage not refer to the authorities of the church? Fraternally, R.W.L. Lipscomb's Reply
We answered the above questions so frequently and fully a few years ago that we feel indisposed to answer them again, yet new readers make it necessary to repeat the truths on this subject as on every other. We hesitate the more to respond to them because we cannot answer them in as few words as we desire without being misunderstood. Many excellent brethren of sound and critical minds have been disposed to refer this scripture to the church authorities. After a full and we think thorough investigation of the subject, we are satisfied that it refers to the civil or political governments of the earth. My first reason for thus believing this is God never ordained his true and faithful children for the performance of such a work, but that he always ordained the wicked to do the work here assigned these ministers of God. The object for which this minister is ordained is as an avenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now God never ordained one of his true, obedient, and spiritual children as an avenger to execute wrath, either in this world or the world to come. In the world to come, the devil is appointed to execute wrath on the evil doers. Christ and the holy angels are appointed to bless and render happy the well doer. In the preceding chapter, the apostle tells the Christian he cannot take vengeance. Avenge not yourselves, but give place unto wrath. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, God tells the Christian, you must not take vengeance, you must do good for evil. I will avenge the wicked, you cannot. Now, the Christian was God's minister ordained for doing good to man, of returning good for evil, and the minister of God for this work could not take vengeance. But God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But God acts through ministers. The Christian is his minister to do good and to bless. He cannot take vengeance, but God has other ministers, the powers that be, that he so overrules in their wickedness and sin as to make them his ministers of wrath, his avengers to execute wrath on him that doeth evil. The idea is common that all of God's ministers are good. This is an error. His ministers are in character fitted for the work he appoints for them to do. Thus Judas Iscariot was a wicked man, a money-loving traitor at heart. In the providence of God for the salvation of the world, it is necessary that Jesus the Christ should be betrayed and crucified. God wants a minister to do this work. He did not choose the gentle and true-hearted John as his minister for this work. John was not in character fitted for it. John was in character fitted as a minister for another work. His gentle, kind, tender disposition made him a peculiarly well-fitted minister to care for the old, decrepit, heart-stricken, and bereaved mother in Israel, and because of this fitness Jesus made him his minister to care for his own bereaved mother. Peter might, in a moment of weakness and discouragement, deny his master, but it took a different character to betray him. Hence, Peter was chosen or ordained as a minister, but not as a minister of wrath and treason. 
Because Judas possessed this money-loving, traitorous heart, God chose him as his minister to betray his Lord, and then damned him with endless infamy for his depraved and wicked character. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who believed not, and who should betray him. Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he that should betray him, being one of the twelve. John 6, verses 64 to 71. Then Judas Iscariot was not made wicked or corrupt by God, but God, seeing his money-loving disposition, and knowing that when once the love of money gets a firm hold on the heart of an individual, that it prepares that heart for treason to every principle of honor and virtue, chose him, on account of this character, as his minister to betray his son into the hands of his enemies. God, in his providential dealings with man, used such characters as his servants or ministers for effecting works of cruelty that were necessary to be performed as parts of his government over the human family. When a nation or people is wholly given to wickedness, when it refuses to obey God, his honor requires that nation should be destroyed. When his servants and followers become disobedient, hard-hearted, and rebellious, his honor and their good require their chastisement, that they may be humbled and brought back to God. In such work God has always chosen the wicked and corrupt as his ministers or servants, and then in the performance of this work secured their own punishment. The Jews disobeyed God, became fearfully rebellious. God determined to punish them. He chose a wicked nation with wicked and bloodthirsty rulers as his servants or ministers to do this work. Jeremiah 25 and verse 8. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and an hissing and perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations, and will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, for many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. This shows that the Jews were rebellious. God determined to punish them with desolation and captivity. Other nations around were hopelessly corrupt. He determined to destroy them. He chooses a servant in character and power fitted to the work of slaughter and desolation. The people of Babylon are strong, are wicked, are depraved, would glory in such work. 
God chooses them as his instruments to accomplish the work and calls their king Nebuchadnezzar my servant to do this work. Nebuchadnezzar does it from no love to God, no disposition to honor God, but from an ambitious and bloody spirit to gratify his love of power, conquest, and aggrandizement. He is unconscious that God is using him. He is wholly ignorant of the purpose of God. It is a case simply of God overruling human ignorance and human wickedness to accomplish his own purposes. It is a case in which the wrath of man is made to praise and glorify God. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Psalm 76 and verse 10. But when God's purposes have been accomplished by the destruction of the nations and the captivity of Judah for seventy years, when Babylon has completed the service which God accomplished through it, he says, It shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations." It is a plain case of God using one wicked nation to punish another, and then destroying the one that is used. God called the wicked king my servant, and the wicked nation my battle-axe to destroy nations not a few. In the fiftieth and fifty-first chapters of Jeremiah may be found the account of the most fearful destruction of Babylon when her seventy years were accomplished. God sometimes used men not so wholly corrupt, but worldly, wicked men, and overruled their pride, liberality, ambition, love of applause to serve him in a way less bloodthirsty and cruel, though still of a nature that his chosen servants could not perform. Cyrus was one of these. In Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7, Isaiah says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, etc. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I have girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Here God uses Cyrus, an idolatrous prince who knew not God who was ambitious of power, place, and renown, makes use of him and overrules this spirit of love of renown for magnanimity to cause him to restore his people to their own land and to enable them to rebuild the temple of God. Not because he desired to honor God, but because he desired the worldly honor of reestablishing the ancient and renowned temple of Jerusalem. God controls his ambition in this line to accomplish his purposes and calls him his anointed servant to do this. Yet he was an idolatrous, wicked, pagan prince, ambitious only of fame and glory for himself. Servants and ministers mean precisely the same in the Bible. God always uses or ordains those to do a work who are in character fitted for its performance and then always rewards the work performed according to the character suited to its performance. A bloody, cruel work demands a bloody, cruel character to perform it. A bloody, cruel destiny is God's reward. He that taketh the sword shall perish by the sword. 
A work of treason to holiness, to virtue, to purity, demands a treasonable heart corrupted by the love of money. A work of love, of gentleness, mercy, and goodwill demands a character pure, gentle, full of mercy, love, and affection for the distress of humanity. The rewards are those of joy, peace, and mercy from God. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. God in the unseen world ordained the wicked one, the enemy of truth and righteousness to execute wrath and vengeance on the finally impenitent. As his reward he is to share with the woes of hell forever and ever. He ordained Jesus, the merciful high priest of salvation, who was touched with a sense of our infirmities and bore the stripes of us all as his servant to minister salvation to the humble and true in the world to come. As his reward he is to enjoy the most ineffable glories of the better land forever. He will occupy his throne at the right hand of the Father." God ordains in this world His humble and true followers as His ministers to do works of love, mercy, long-suffering, tender pity, and receive the reward of mercy and love in return here and hereafter. The wicked, the corrupt, the rebellious are His chosen ministers, avengers to execute wrath on those who do evil and in turn receive according to their works. The sharp sword of God's unquenchable wrath will repay. Then if man wishes a merciful reward, he must so act as to form for himself a character suited for a minister of mercy, and that will secure him a merciful reward, not a wrathful one. These civil powers were, then, God's ministers for executing wrath. They were wicked, corrupt, and cruel. Nero, the prince of cruel, bloodthirsty demons, was the great ruler. The cruelty was so great there was danger of Christians resisting, striving by violence to overthrow the government. He commands them to be subject to these authorities. God is using them as his ministers of vengeance to execute wrath on the evildoers. Of course they will reap the reward of wrath and vengeance from God. As they have done to others, so shall it be done to them. But the difficulty is they are said to be ministers of God to Christians for good, that Christians are told to do well and they shall have praise of these rulers. This is true in more senses than one. Persecutions to the church have been for good to the Christians, and yet the gentle spirit of Christian forbearance has extracted praise, respect, and honor from the most cruel agents of persecution. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. God permits persecution to come only so far as is good for the Christian, the remainder of wrath God restraineth. So these powers work for the good of the Christian even in their persecution of Christians as well as in their suppression and destruction of the evildoer. As God ordains ministers for wrath as well as for mercy, He ordains institutions of wrath as well as institutions of mercy. He ordains an institution of mercy, His church, and asks the world to enter, do mercy, and receive mercy. Those who accept the invitation act and live in it. It is ordained for them. 
But for those who refuse to enter and become ministers of mercy, he ordains institutions fitted for their rebellious character in which they work while rejecting God's institution of mercy for his children. These institutions of wrath God ordains for wrath. They will be destroyed after serving their purpose here. People build them up unconscious that God is ordaining them for the destruction of the builders, of those refusing His government of mercy. God ordains for people just such institutions as they deserve. If they are obedient and submissive, His merciful government is their heritage. If they refuse to obey God's government, He ordains they shall be governed by the oppressive rule of man's own governments, of which the devil is the great head. Hence God ordains these governments of wrath for the children of wrath. They are not ordained for the purpose or the people for which God ordains his church, but for the wicked. See how God ordained a kingdom for the Jews. 1 Samuel chapter 8. He ordains a government not to bless but to punish for their rebellion in refusing to submit to God's government that he had established for their good. So God ordains institutions to punish and destroy the wicked and rebellious. He brings through these persecutions upon his children to humble and purify them. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people be not afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and God hath not done it? Amos chapter 3, verse 6. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah 45, verse 7. Evils of a physical nature are here spoken of, and it is a declaration that God in His providence brings war, famine, and ruin as a consequence of man's sins. The idea is, then, the powers referred to here are civil or political powers. They are ordained of God as instruments of wrath for the children of wrath, to be conducted and operated by the ministers of wrath, and their destiny will be a destruction of fierce wrath that God's children must submit to them as such, not strive by violence to destroy them. When in the providence of God they are no longer needed, He will destroy them, cause them to destroy and eat up one another. No Christian then can become a partaker or participator or partisan of them lest he partake in their woes. Quiet, passive submission that involves no violation of the laws of the spiritual kingdom is the measure and limit of their connection with them. God's kingdom of mercy, His church, is His institution in which His children of mercy must operate and in it receive the rewards of mercy. A number of our most studious and devoted brethren of the older class adopted and maintained this position. Among the older ones were Tolbert Fanning, P.S. Fall, and B.U. Watkins. We give the following article from the Gospel Advocate for the year 1870 by B.U. Watkins.